I think that experience as being an immigrant shaped me as a person and also my my research interests and my career development here in the U.S. That was Dr. Lisbeth Iglesias Rios, a current fellow and my guest today, talking about her journey to public health research. I am so excited for you all to hear more about her journey. But first, hello. Welcome back to the Agents of Change and Environmental Justice podcast, a partnership between Environmental Health News and Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health. I'm Brian Binkowski, your host, senior editor at Environmental Health News and the editor of Agents of Change. I don't know if you can hear the breeze, the soft breeze and the birds, but summer is in full swing here in northern Michigan. I think those are black-capped chickadees. I'm not sure. Hopefully you're listening to this in a hammock or on a beach or in your garden, somewhere fun, somewhere sunny. We remain so grateful to all of you listeners, and we want to connect with you. So please reach out to our team on socials, Agents of Change and Environmental Justice, and please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your family, your friends, faculty, or whoever you think needs to hear about the cutting edge of environmental justice work. Today, as I mentioned, I am talking to Dr. Lisbeth Iglesias Rios, a research investigator at the University of Michigan and a co-investigator of the Michigan Farmworker Project, a community-based participatory research project that assesses the working and living conditions of migrant and seasonal farm workers in the state of Michigan. We talk about being raised by two strong women, her winding tough path to becoming a researcher, and why we all need to advocate for better workplace conditions for the people that grow our food. Enjoy. All right, I am super excited to be joined by Dr. Lisbeth Iglesias Rios. Lisbeth, how are you today? I'm very good, very excited that we have a spring coming. <laughs> is it? Is it coming? Because where I live... Well, I don't it, know. It's coming and going. <laughs> I don't know. I, I finally... Yeah. We are, uh, for the listener, we are recording in late April and I... Uh, I just saw my first, I believe they're called crocuses, the wildflowers poking oh. up here in my in my yard the other day. So yes, it's an exciting, always an exciting time to crawl out of winter here in Michigan. And of course, you are from a place far away from here that <laughs> probably experienced yeah. much different weather. So I do like to start at the beginning. So you grew up in Mexico City, raised by your mother and grandmother. Can you talk about your upbringing and how you think it may have shaped you? Sure. I, I think I have a great childhood overall. Uh, we live in, in a borough in Mexico City, in the south part of the city, uh, known as Xochimilco. Uh, Xochimilco is a Nahual word that means uh, where the flowers grow. And in front of the house where I grew up, there was an empty lot and people bring their vacas or their cows to graze. Uh, so the neighborhood really have a very rural feeling, uh, but now things have changed a lot. And I grew up with my mom and my grandmother, basically. Um, my memories, uh, when I think about my grandmother, are connected with food, the tradition, our culture. And as a child, I fondly remember going with my grandma to the Xochimilco market and enjoying the colors of the fruits, the flowers, the different smells of the market. Um, my mom, uh, my mom was a very, talking about my mom, was a very generous person. Um, she, as a young woman, started to, uh, working as a teacher in a school, and then she became a physician. Uh, she was an orthopedic surgeon, and um, her patients were actually children and, and loved her. 
And she was the type of doctor that will always have a big bag of lollipops for the children. Um, I, my mother was a very smart woman and, and a person with a very big heart. And I have very lovely memories of her uh, with these big parties, birthdays, piñatas, and things like that. I also remember my mother always being very busy and not having a lot of, I, I didn't see my mother very often. So I spent a lot of my childhood really in, in the hospital because that was the only way to see my mom. <laughs> very weird. I, as a child, you don't know any different, of course. Your childhood is, is, is unique to you, so you don't know any different. But I'm wondering if there's anything about being raised by two strong women that you think uh, left an imprint on you or, or, or led you down a different path. Definitely. I think um, education was a very important thing. Uh, my, my mom came from, my, my grandmother was a survivor of human trafficking. So we come from a family that have a lot of struggles and education was a way to, to push us forward. Uh, so yes, they have, my mother, you know, education was everything for my mother and she instilled that on me. So, yes. And you can learn more about all of this if you are listening to this in Lizbeth's excellent essay she wrote, and that's on ehn.org. And we will have a link, of course, along with this podcast. So I'd like to ask everybody, what is a defining moment that shaped your identity up to this point? Yeah, I think there are uh, many moments in different stages of my life. One very important, of course, was growing up in Mexico uh, my mother, as I mentioned, always instilled in, in me the love for our culture and our history. I'm very proud of my roots. Uh, another key moment uh, for me was when I left Mexico. I was 19 years old, I think, and went to live alone in Spain just with my, my bag and anything else. Uh, uh, so I spent 10 years of my life in Spain, and that uh, so basically all my young adult life was in Spain. So I also have a very strong connection with that country. Um, and I think that experience as being an immigrant shaped me as a person and also my my research interests and my career development here in the U.S. A hundred percent. And we, of course, I want to talk about that research. It's of, of, of particular interest to me uh, being here in Michigan with you. But first, let's talk about the journey a little bit, which you alluded to. So I know you had to take on a whole bunch of jobs to pay for your first yes. master's in clinical psychology. And then you worked as a counselor and a health worker. And I'm wondering, a, a lot of people kind of have this, uh, I would call it a privileged path of just kind of going straight through school and uh, acquiring degrees. Yeah. And you didn't have that. So what about these experiences you think made you want to go into public health? Oof. Well, it's, it's, there's a lot of things. But yes, I work uh, in... So I basically left Mexico because the situation in Mexico was very difficult in terms of crime and many... the lack of opportunities. And I got accepted into this master program at the University of Barcelona and I was get very excited and my mom supported me. And but I, you know, we didn't have money, so it was basically okay. I, I help you to take uh, pay for the airplane ticket and the first month, and then you need to figure it out. And so I work cleaning houses as a nanny, working restaurants. Um, at the same time, I was taking classes and I was working as a research assistant at the in a substance abuse center in the San Paul Hospital in Barcelona. Um, 
And then eventually I got a job in uh, one of the municipal clinics in Barcelona, and I was one of the counselors in the tobacco cessation program that we developed at the clinic, and I work with uh, people with alcohol issues. And then I have this research opportunity in the U.S. connected with the work that I was doing in substance abuse, and I came to Albuquerque, New Mexico. My, um, it was very tough because, you know, my English was very limited and it was very tough at the beginning. Um, but I was able to, um, I started working in a nonprofit clinic in Santa Fe in, in New Mexico, again, with Spanish speaking clients with substance abuse problems, um, and then at the same time, I was working in this research center on substance abuse and um, and then we're working with these people, you know, they were mainly immigrants with DWIs and just understanding the complexity of their lives uh, with what it means to be an immigrant in a new country, new language, culture, and so forth really made me wanted to focus on issues that were more related to human rights and social justice. And I ended up meeting a professor, um, in the MPH program, the master's in public health at the university of New Mexico. Her name is, uh, is Dr. Celia Iriart. She's from Argentina and she was trained in Brazil. And she, we just, uh, she invited me to her class in health policy, and I absolutely, that opened my eyes, you know, to public health. And then uh, at the same time, I met Dr. Alexis Handel. Uh, she's an epidemiologist and an associate professor at the University of Michigan. And we, I work with her here, but it was funny because she was my professor at the, in the MPH. So basically, we, I finished my MPH and then we didn't see each other for 10 years. And then we reencounter each other and we're working together again. So it's very cool. Uh, so those two people, Dr. Iriar and Dr. Handel, were very influential on the path that I took. Um, yeah. And what a great opportunity to work with someone who was a mentor at one point. That is that is very cool. And so now your re- research focuses on precarious employment, labor exploitation, and health inequities. So first, can you kind of give us, um, tell us what you mean by precarious employment and how these three things are interconnected? Yeah, let, let me just start by telling you a little bit about the story. Um, I, when I complete, I completed my doctoral uh, training at the University of Michigan in epidemiology. But for my dissertation, um, I analyzed data from survivors of labor trafficking in Southeast Asia. And this was part of a study uh, called the Study of Trafficking, Exploitation and Abuse in the Greater Mekong Region. It was basically Cambodia, Thailand, and Vietnam. And this study was conducted by Dr. Ligia Keys and Dr. Cathy Zimmerman. Uh, they are both professors at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in the UK. Um, so I was very interested on, on the, doing something for my dissertation related to labor trafficking. I couldn't find any investigators in the U.S. doing primary data collection. And this topic is much more evolved in Europe than here. So I found them. And so I went to London um, just when they finished their data collection. And we established a research collaboration for me to use their data set and work on my dissertation. And this topic is is personal uh, to me, given that my grandmother was a survivor of human trafficking. So 
that's the story behind. But coming back to what is precarious employment, um, I don't think there's a single definition of what constitutes constitutes precarious employment. It's a context, it's a concept that is very uh, context specific with the labor policies, programs, and regulations in place, with the level of enforcement as well as cultural issues. No, what might be considered here precarious in other countries not be precarious. But in general, uh, precarious employment is characterized by poor job features, so informal or temporal jobs, job insecurity, low wages, uh, limited or no benefits for the workers, essentially the gig economy. Um, so, but we are trying in, in our research, we found workers, we are trying to think about a little bit different about this concept and propose that precarious employment is not um, it's not something that is black and white, but coexists in a dynamic continuum because people usually don't follow linear employment trajectories anymore. You change jobs, you uh, before you stay in a job until you retire, but it's no longer like that. And people sometimes have more than one job. So, and in this continuum, the of working conditions, there's kind of an oscillation between what can be considered fair and decent labor, precarious labor, labor exploitation, and the most extreme form of exploitation uh, that will be labor trafficking. But labor exploitation goes beyond precarity in that is more characterized by abuses to the workers, coercion, threats, cheating wages, extreme working hours. And the most important concept that we are trying to uh, develop in in this definition is the abuse of the vulnerability of the worker to obtain some benefit and when the concern of the worker to this job is irrelevant. So the point of the abuse is of the vulnerability of an individual is quite important and is key um, for this uh, concept of exploitation because not always exploitation is very evident and not always is well captured by our policies, regulations and laws. Case in point is the situation of H2A farm workers with visas and legal contracts, and they're highly exploited. Um, so essentially, this continuum of precarity and exploitation reflects on just social relationships, these asymmetric dynamics of power and control over the workers that are intersected by the social vulnerability of the worker. And you mentioned the example that has been largely the focus of your work. And of course, this is, this can happen in a, in a variety of different types of employment. But can you talk about how and why farm workers are at such a risk to be affected by these labor inequalities? And how does that manifest in health impacts? Yeah, well, unfair and unsafe working conditions eventually get you. It is well known that chronic stress impacts health. And there's, there's this cumulative overload of negative experience that deteriorates health. Labor inequalities essentially manifest in health impacts in that workers may not have equal um, or enforceable labor standards and protections. For example, agriculture, agricultural working sites are known as labor camps in Michigan and other places in the U.S. for farm workers require to have one shower for every 10 people, one toilet and hand washing sink for 15 workers, one laundry top for 30 workers. And also not all uh, of these sites have uh, uh, laundry machines or dryers. 
So when I interview the workers, many say that they just pile clothes inside the room until they are taken once a week to do their, their laundry. These regulations to me seem outdated given the vast evidence on pesticide exposure in farm workers, but they are in compliance with federal law. By You know, this law is established by the Department of Labor, Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and have been adopted by the Michigan Occupational Safety and Health Administration. But as you can see, these standards are not sufficient to ensure that farm workers have access to healthy living conditions. And we're talking about workers that are heavily exposed to dirt every day, and also chemicals, um, and some in, on these working sites, you also have families living in these housing units. You have children. Another example that um, is very important, I think, is in Michigan, is the, the migrant labor housing program. So they're in charge of doing the inspections of these agricultural working sites. And according to their 2021 annual report, the Migrant Labor Housing Program licensed more than 800 agricultural worker housing sites with more than 3,000 units with a capacity of almost 30,000 30, people. Yet, the Migrant Housing Program works with one bilingual office uh, assistant and only seven inspectors. They are not all bilingual. And these are the people that are performing inspections in all these sites, in all the state, only for places that they have five or more farm workers, because if there's less than five workers, there's not even inspections. So to me, these are examples of systems in place that potentially are creating labor and health inequalities. I appreciate you talking about the system level. Um, and I just, as someone who lives here, want to bring it to a very personal level is I, I'm a cyclist. Mm -hmm. And I know when I go to say Traverse City and ride up Old Mission Peninsula, there are wineries dotting everywhere. And, uh, and then there are these camps or, or, you know, small trailer communities where um, farm workers are working and it's hidden and it's out of view. And if you're a, a wealthy person that wants to go up there and drink wine, you're, you're looking at the vineyard and all of this is out of view. And exactly. I think that's just, um, it's a, it's a really kind of ugly system and, and symptomatic of our agriculture system kind of writ large. So you, you mentioned Michigan and I think a lot of people probably think of California and, and other places when they think of um, immigrant farm workers. So can you talk about the Michigan farm worker project and some of the key sure. findings uh, that your team has uncovered in examining the social and working conditions of farm workers here? Yes. Just, so just to give a little bit of context of the Michigan Farm Worker Project, this is a project that uh, Dr. Alexis Handel and, and I developed in 2019 as a community-based participatory project. And the project really started from my after my dissertation and my research interest on precarious employment, labor exploitation, and health. And, and, I, and the relationships that I established with community organizations, stakeholders, and, and the workers. Um, so the project really evolved organically from this uh, collective need and shared vision of developing research to inform policies, programs, and interventions to address the working and living conditions for farm workers here in Michigan. And since 2019, we established partnerships with the Office of Migrant Affairs, which is part of the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. 
We also partner with uh, Michigan Immigrants Rights Center and Farm Worker Legal Services, and these are two nonprofit uh, legal uh, service entities that provide services to farm workers and, and migrants. Um, so we have conducted two studies, uh, one in 2019 and the other one during the pandemic in 2020. The first study in 2019 um, was a qualitative study where I um, conducted in person and in-depth interviews with 35 farm workers, females and males, and 21 stakeholders. So these were people that provide services to farm workers in areas related to education, healthcare, legal services, advocacy, social services. And the study really was an eye-opener for me because I traveled to these several rural areas uh, that you mentioned in Michigan and spent time with the workers in the field, in gas stations, in taco stands, Latino stores, in, in their work. And I saw the substandard conditions of, of some of the housing units where workers live. And I will say that to me, one of the key findings coming from the stories of the workers was to document the, the humanized treatment of these workers by their supervisors and employers and the contractors, treating workers as disposables with no uh, consideration and respect. And I, I want to read this quote from one of the workers um, that I think captures very well what I'm saying. This is from a male farm worker that I interview, and he say, when you are not useful to them, referring to the growers, they threw you away like a banana peel. He, the grower, wants his production that you do the work. And if you are not one of the people that follows what they want, they fire you. Another female farm worker say, I felt like we were animals, all day being bent down and working quickly, quickly and without breaks and drinking water. So there are very unequal uh, powers of dynamic and control over the workers. Uh, workers, you know, I interview workers that receive threats of being called immigration enforcement and being deported. H2A farm workers, um, highly exploited and threatened that if they complain or say something, they will be put in the blacklist so no one will hire them back again to come to the U.S., Workers that were afraid of talking to me because of potential retaliation from the employers, me being escorted out from an agricultural working site here in Michigan because they didn't want me to talk with the, their H2A farm workers. Um, so essentially, not only the working conditions and living conditions are precarious, but many farm workers here in our state are exploited. Part, pardon my ignorance here, but is the lack of... It, can they not have any kind of unionization because of immigrant status? I think they can, and that's what is missing in Michigan, and that will be very important. Like the, a big example is in Florida, these um, Imokali um, farm workers, they, they are unionized, and I think that's what is missing in Michigan. They, they should, I mean, we need to work on that. That will be very important for the workers because also... The story is complicated. Under the H-2A program, um, they also bring workers mainly from rural towns in Mexico to work in agriculture. And it's very obscure, very obscure the way the workers are recruited in Mexico, how they sign legal contracts to work in the U.S. without even understanding the legal language in their contract. They show me the contracts. is like 
I don't know, 30 pages that I myself don't understand what is in there. Um, they don't know the, ri- the rights, uh, what entails the work, where are they going to be placed in the U.S. I interviewed workers here in Michigan, and they didn't have any idea of the location. They didn't know the address of the the, the farm, um, the name of the employer, uh, and many say, for example, Nimodo, you know, we're here to work and follow orders. And our second study during the pandemic, um, this was a study that was commissioned to Dr. Handel and myself uh, by the Michigan Department of Civil Rights to, to assess uh, housing access, affordability, and quality during the pandemic and beyond. And the report is publicly available, and there's many details and results that we found. Um, but they're very consistent with this previous study and highlight that the social vulnerability and the marginalization of farm workers affects access and housing quality and affordability. So if we want to improve housing for farm workers, we need to address the, the working conditions. In our study, farm workers, for example, reported facing many challenges when it comes to housing access and affordability. With that, there are both important factors for health, um, because if you spend a lot of time, a lot of, uh, sorry, of your income on housing, paying mortgage or rent or repairs, that really is going to affect your budget to access nutritious food, healthcare, and other health-promoting resources. And about a quarter of migrant and seasonal farm workers in our study reported being denied housing were trying to find rental places in Michigan. And this is because of the lack of social securities, no money for make the deposits, discrimination. Housing in Michigan is very expensive, and they don't want people that may just going to be staying for short seasons. So it's very complicated. So in, in addition to the union, unionization that we mentioned, what could or should we be doing, whether it's at the federal or state level or even as individuals, to be giving farm workers a safer, healthier and more just employment? I think um, let me, I, sorry. I think it's important to recognize um, the essential role of farm workers in the U.S. And that requires the modernizing the Fair Labor Standards Act provisions to enforce labor policies and regulations, like raising the minimum hiring age for farm worker children, support farm workers' right to unionize, as you mentioned, increase wages, and enforce minimum wage payments instead of relying on the peace rate system, providing farm workers a legal path to citizenship because you know, many workers that I interview and, 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 you know, and we know they are undocumented. And, but they have been living in Michigan for five, ten years, and they contribute to the economy of the country. And so why not uh, give them the chance to have um, some, uh, to gain some legal status in the country? I also think that they should increase the fines uh, to employers with labor violations, and the system of inspection of housing and working sites needs to improve as well. We cannot work with seven inspectors in the whole states with thousands of workers and thousands of housing sites. I think that people, also, if people knew that their organic strawberries from a farm come from a farm where workers are exploited, people would think twice about buying them. So the sort of system for workers... Um, 
also to come forward and make complaints at the state and federal uh, level in these websites is not accessible in either language and is not really anonymous uh, and requires a lot of information from the workers that they may not even know. Um, I think there's irony, too, in that a lot of these places where there's uh, immigrant farm workers are very rural counties and I'm uh, mostly vote in a way that has vilified immigration and um, and it, just the irony of uh, kind of the backbone of the community and the people growing the food that is making the money at the top of the food chain there. Uh, they are voting against protections and, and not only protections, but just Voting against immigration across the board um, is just a very weird kind of irony. Um, I think we're very ignorant. (laughs) Yes. Well, that's a very that's a much more succinct way of saying what I was trying to say. (laughs) We are are very ignorant. We don't know who grows our food and um, we should and we should care. So we talk a lot about community participatory participatory research on this podcast. You would think I could say it uh, after we talk about it so much and on this program. So I'm, I'm wondering what that means to you. It sounds like that's a big part of your research. Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. do you try to, you know, you mentioned the the kind of key collaborations you work with. Um, mm-hmm. What, how, how do you try to use community participatory mm-hmm. research and help it help benefit farm workers from the work that you're doing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, means collective action towards the common goal of improving the situation of the workers. It means workers having voice, power, and control over their lives. It means recognizing that they are indeed essential workers and valuable workers, regardless of their immigration status or nationality. Um, In terms of the benefit of the research, it's more complicated. I will say that uh, change uh, takes time. Getting funding for research takes time and that the institutions with the funding will be interested in addressing these issues that we discussed today. And I think it's also important the involvement of state agencies in making these issues a priority and allocating funding. So the Michigan Farm Worker Project is ongoing and developing and we will continue applying for grants. We will continue conducting rigorous research to provide scientific information that can be used by stakeholders and policymakers to inform policies and interventions here in Michigan. And hopefully that could be also helpful for other states working with this population. Mm-hmm. And before we get to some fun stuff, where can people find the Michigan Farm Worker Project? It's in the website of the School of Public Health. I can send you the link. But if you Google the Michigan Farm Worker Project, School of Public Health, University of Michigan, you will find all our reports and our policy brief and our studies and our information too. Excellent. Well, let's let's have some let's have some fun questions. So, <laughs> before my last question, I have three rapid fire ones where you can just answer with one word or a phrase. The highlight of this week so far has been. Roasting and eating chiles poblanos. Oh, I'm your favorite. <laughs> that sounds that sounds delicious. My favorite season is summer. Summer, of course. And if I could have dinner with one person, alive or deceased, it would be. Mm-hmm. 
my grandmother and my mother. We will be eating mole together for sure. <laughs> oh, what a nice, what a nice thought. And so, Lisbeth, this has been so much fun. I've really enjoyed uh, not only hearing about your work today, but working with you through this program. It's again, it's very near and dear to my heart. So my last question is, what is the last book that you read for fun? Oh my goodness! All the child, all, all the children books of Patricia Polaco. <laughs> I love her books. My favorite is Holes in the Sky. I, I, my son and I learned so much about Michigan, and 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 I, I just love her books. So I, we read them all the time. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Lizbeth, thank you so much for doing this today. I really appreciate it, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Ryan. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Lizbeth. I know I did. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit us at agentsofchangenej.org. And while you're there, click the donate button to support us. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. And please rate, review, subscribe, all those good things, and help us grow. This podcast was written, recorded, produced, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Dr. Amizoda, Dr. Yoshira Onelis Fanhorn, Dr. Vina Singla, Dr. Max Ong, Dr. Lariah Edwards, Summer Ahmad, and Maria Paula Rubiano. Our music is now sung by Poddington Bear. You can email our team at agentsofchangeinej at gmail.com and sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity and science and health going. Join us next time when you will not hear from me, but you will once again hear from Lizbeth, today's guest, as she joins Dr. Valerisa Jogatti, who you may remember from a past episode. The two fellows discuss the impact of motherhood on their research and careers. You do not want to miss this one. Have a great week, folks. <laughs>